0: Hey, you found us. Welcome, everybody.
1: This is Scripture Gems. Hello, and welcome to the show. My name is John Fulmer, and this is my brother Jay.
0: How's it going, John? We are two
1: brothers who just can't get enough of the Scriptures. Yeah, we love them. This episode, we are going over the Come Follow Me lesson for November 22nd through 28th, 2021. This is covering Doctrine and Covenants, sections 135 through 136. And now... Let's bring out the star of the show, The Scriptures.
0: Hi, Scriptures.
1: Wow, so nice to have you here. Now let's consult the Scripturmatic 6000 to find out how long it will take to read this week's reading. 13 minutes, 32 seconds. Whoa, that's a short
0: one. What would it be daily?
1: One minute, 56 seconds. (laughs)
0: Okay. So just two minutes a day. That's right. Here we've got time codes. If you want to take a look at this section by section or buckle up and we'll head through the whole thing. Right here we've got a chart of the when and the where of the revelations. And just before we start, I wanted to make an announcement. John and I noticed there's a new podcast on the Nauvoo Temple. And it's actually a great podcast from the Joseph Smith Papers Project. It's in your Gospel Library app. If you go to Church History. Joseph Smith Papers podcasts, and then it's right on the top. The Nauvoo Temple, a Joseph Smith Papers podcast. Some great information about the Nauvoo era, and
1: they're doing great work at the Joseph Smith Papers
0: project. Yes, indeed. We'll put a link to it in the description if you want to just click to get there.
1: Okay, so let's jump into section one thirty-five. Let's get our background from the Institute manual. In early eighteen forty-four a group of apostates in Nauvoo, Illinois, declared the prophet Joseph Smith to be a fallen prophet and tried to start a rival church. Some even held secret meetings during which they plotted to kill him. On June 7, 1844, some of these dissenters printed and distributed the first and what would be the only issue of a newspaper they called the Nauvoo Expositor, It attacked the leadership of the Prophet Joseph Smith, who was serving as mayor of Nauvoo, accusing him of teaching false doctrine, of overstepping his political and religious authority, and of secretly practicing polygamy. It also called for the repeal of the Nauvoo Charter. During a meeting of the Nauvoo City Council on June 10, 1844, the council passed an ordinance declaring the Nauvoo Expositor a nuisance and also issued an order to Joseph Smith to stop the said nuisance. At that meeting, the Prophet Joseph Smith observed that the conduct of such men and such newspapers are calculated to destroy the peace of the city, and it is not safe that such things should exist on account of the mob spirit which they tend to produce. He also stated that the newspaper was exciting the spirit of mobocracy among the people, and bringing death and destruction upon us.
0: Now, I know that from our safe and comfortable place in modern life, we would look back on that and we might be concerned about this kind of government intervention. But do you just remember what we've talked about this year? In what way has mob violence affected the saints? Right. Repeatedly. Time after time. Time And what's the government done? Nothing.
1: And it's interesting because when they founded Nauvoo, the Nauvoo Charter particularly called for protection mechanisms to prevent this kind of thing from happening to them again. And it's interesting that their enemies, that's one of the first things they want repealed is the Nauvoo Charter. Yeah.
0: I can't blame them for wanting to establish some kind of structure that would finally protect them from people that have been taking advantage of them place after place.
1: Okay, so let's take a look at what happened next. Going back to the introduction, the Nauvoo City Council ordered the city marshal to destroy the printing press for the Nauvoo Expositor. Subsequently, the owners of the Nauvoo Expositor filed charges against Joseph Smith and other Nauvoo City officials for rioting. Fueled by the accusations of the Prophet's enemies, citizens in the nearby communities of Warsaw and Carthage gave speeches and wrote newspaper articles calling for an armed force to expel all Latter-day Saints from the state of Illinois if Joseph Smith and others did not surrender to authorities. As mayor of Nauvoo, Joseph Smith declared martial law to protect residents of the city from possible attacks. The prophet also appealed to state authorities for help in resolving the legal issue. As tensions grew in the state, Thomas Ford, the governor of Illinois, issued an order for Joseph Smith and other Nauvoo City officials to go to Carthage, Illinois, to stand trial on the rioting charges. Now, as a side note, Saints Volume 1, Chapter 43, talks about the fact that Governor Ford acknowledged that the destruction of the Nauvoo Expositor was appropriate and legal, even though it was not perhaps a
0: wise political move. You know, it's so hard to tell what a wise political... What are you going to do? Just let people run over you? And yet as soon as you stand up, then they get charged on rioting? Right. What happened to all the other rioters prior to this who were affecting the Saints? It's a frustrating situation. They were all
1: acquitted, evidently.
0: Yeah. Well, let's go on. With Nauvoo under the threat of attack and having received Governor Ford's assurance that they would receive a safe and fair trial, the Prophet Joseph Smith, Hiram Smith, and other Nauvoo officials traveled to Carthage. After a hearing, Joseph and the other defendants were allowed to post bail. At this point, the prophet's enemies charged Joseph and Hiram Smith with treason based on Joseph's declaration of martial law in Nauvoo. Treason was a non-bailable offense, so Joseph and Hiram would have to remain in jail until their trial. The prophet and his brother were placed in custody and taken from the Hamilton Hotel, where they had been staying, to Carthage Jail to await trial. On the afternoon of june twenty seventh eighteen forty four, a hostile mob attacked the jailer's second floor bedroom in Carthage jail, where the prisoners were staying, and murdered the Prophet Joseph Smith and Hiram Smith. Two others, Elder john Taylor and Elder Willard Richards, who were members of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, were also in the room with the Prophet and his brother. john Taylor was seriously wounded while Willard Richards escaped without any injury. In July and August 1844, a written announcement of the martyrdom was prepared based on the eyewitness accounts of Elder John Taylor and Elder Willard Richards. The Church included this announcement and tribute to the Prophet Joseph Smith at the end of the 1844 edition of the Doctrine and Covenants. That announcement is now recorded in Doctrine and Covenants' Section 135. So, in our
1: last lesson, we talked about Section 133 being the appendix of the Doctrine and Covenants, and that the document of governments and laws in general, or Section 134, was added as an appendix to the appendix. So this is an appendix to the appendix of the appendix. <laughs> I, they just keep adding stuff.
0: Uh, and thank goodness.
1: Yes. So much has been written about this event, and we won't take time to go through the many, many details we know about it. But for a much more detailed account, we strongly recommend Saints Volume 1, chapter 44, and/or the Institute Manual Church History in the Fullness of Times, chapter 22. Also, don't forget Revelations in Context, Remembering
0: the Martyrdom. Those are great resources. But let's jump into the section. Section 135, let's start in verse 1. To seal the testimony of this book and the Book of Mormon, we announce the martyrdom of Joseph Smith, the prophet, and Hiram Smith, the patriarch. They were shot in Carthage jail on the 27th of June, 1844, about five o'clock p.m., by an armed mob painted black of from one hundred fifty to two hundred persons. Hiram was shot first and fell calmly, exclaiming, I am a dead man. Joseph leaped from the window and was shot dead in the attempt, exclaiming, O oh Lord my God! They were both shot after they were dead in a brutal manner, and both received four balls. John Taylor and Willard Richards, two of the twelve, were the only persons in the room at the time. The former was wounded in a savage manner with four balls, but has since recovered. The latter, through the providence of God, escaped without even a hole in his robe. Joseph Smith, the prophet and seer of the Lord, has done more save Jesus only for the salvation of men in this world than any other man that ever lived in it. In the short space of twenty years, he has brought forth the Book of Mormon, which he translated by the gift and power of God, and he has been the means of publishing it on two continents, has sent the fullness of the everlasting gospel, which it contained, to the four quarters of the earth, has brought forth the revelations and commandments, which compose this Book of Doctrine and Covenants, and many other wise documents and instructions for the benefit of the children of men, gathered many thousands of Latter-day Saints, founded a great city, and left a fame and name that cannot be slain. He lived great and he died great in the eyes of God and his people, and, like most of the Lord's anointed in ancient times, has sealed his mission and his works with his own blood. And so has his brother Hiram. In life they were not divided, And in death, they were not separated.
1: That is an amazing tribute and certainly deserved. From the Institute Manual, we have this edition from President Gordon B. Hinckley. This comes from April 2005 General Conference, where he says, quote, During the brief 38 and one-half years of his life, there came through him an incomparable outpouring of knowledge, gifts, and doctrine Looked at objectively, there is nothing to compare with it. Subjectively, it is the substance of the personal testimony of millions of Latter-day Saints across the earth. End quote. Amen to that. I'm particularly moved by the last line about Hiram. In life, they were not divided, and in death, they were not separated.
0: The Institute Manual also has a quote from the Improvement Era in August of 1918. This is from President Heber J. Grant. He says this, There is no better example of an older brother's love than that exhibited in the life of Hiram Smith for the prophet Joseph Smith. They were as united and as affectionate and as loving as mortal men could be. There was no place for jealousy in the heart of Hiram Smith. No mortal man could have been more loyal, more true, more faithful in life or in death than was Hiram Smith to the prophet of the living God.
1: Such a great tribute. Such great men. Going back to the section, verse 4. When Joseph went to Carthage to deliver himself up to the pretended requirements of the law two or three days previous to his assassination, he said, I am going like a lamb to the slaughter, but I am calm as a summer's morning. I have a conscience void of offense towards God and towards all men. I shall die innocent, and it shall yet be said of me, he was murdered in cold blood. Now, in the Come Follow Me manual, in the Family Home Evening Ideas section, they have a wonderful video that is put together from a conference talk from Elder Jeffrey R. Holland. This is from October 2009, a wonderful talk called Safety for the Soul. It really is. This is a video that they continue to play at the Carthage Visitors Center, and it summarizes this section of the Revelation a little too well. Oh yes. And so we're gonna let him
2: continue the story. When Joseph Smith and his brother Hiram started for Carthage, to face what they knew would be an imminent martyrdom, Hiram read these words of comfort to the heart of his brother. Thou hast been faithful. Wherefore, thou shalt be made strong, even unto the sitting down in the place with which I have prepared in the mansions of my father. A few short verses from the 12th chapter of Ether in the Book of Mormon. Before closing the book, Hiram turned down the corner of the page from which he had read, marking it as part of the everlasting testimony for which these two brothers were about to die. I hold in my hand that book the very copy from which Hiram read, the same corner of the page turned down still visible. Later, when actually incarcerated in the jail, Joseph the prophet bore a powerful testimony of the divine authenticity of the Book of Mormon. Shortly thereafter, Pistol and Ball would take the lives of these two testators. In this their greatest and last hour of need, I ask you, would these men blaspheme before God by continuing to fix their lives, their honor, and their own search for eternal salvation on a book, and by implication, a church and a ministry they had fictitiously created out of whole cloth, never mind that their wives are about to be widows and their children fatherless. Never mind that their little band of followers will yet be houseless, homeless, and friendless and that their children will leave footprints of blood across frozen rivers and an untamed prairie floor. Never mind that legions will die and other legions live, declaring in the four quarters of this earth that they know the Book of Mormon and the Church which it espouses it to be true. Disregard all of that and tell me whether in this hour of death these two men would enter the presence of their eternal judge quoting from and finding solace in a book which, if not the very Word of God, would brand them as imposters and charlatans until the end of time. They would not do that. They were willing to die rather than deny the divine origin and the eternal truthfulness of the Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon is true and was given to bring happiness and hope to the faithful in the travail of the last days. Brothers and sisters, God always provides safety for the soul. And with the Book of Mormon, he has again done that in our time. Remember this declaration by Jesus Himself, Whoso treasureth up my word shall not be deceived, and in the last days neither your heart nor your faith will fail you. Of this I earnestly testify in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.
0: I don't know how you can—I mean, it's not only a powerful testimony of Joseph Smith, but it's a powerful testimony of an apostle, of a prophet for Joseph Smith. Very, very compelling.
1: It's a marvelous presentation, and it's certainly additionally powerful to see the actual Book of Mormon <laughs> that was there. Wow. And it's just—wow.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, if you haven't shared it with your family, I hope you will, family or friends. Let's go on in verse 6. Hiram Smith was 44 years old in February of 1844, and Joseph Smith was 38 in December of 1843. And henceforth, their names will be classed among the martyrs of religion. And the reader in every nation will be reminded that the Book of Mormon... And this book of Doctrine and Covenants of the church cost the best blood of the 19th century to bring them forth for the salvation of a ruined world. Wow. So as we consider that statement, ask yourself, discuss with family and friends, in what ways do these books, the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenants, help bring about the salvation of the world? We've talked about a lot of ways in the years that we've covered Book of Mormon and Doctrine and Covenants, but it's a great time to reflect back on the legacy that these books have given to the world. And what a legacy.
1: Now members of the church at that time strongly affirmed the innocence of Joseph and Hiram Smith. You can see that in verse seven where they repeatedly call out innocent blood. And they held the state of Illinois responsible for their deaths. There's a case to be made there, as Governor Thomas was made aware of the threat to their lives in advance and ignored it. You can look at that in Saints, Volume 1. As a side bit of trivia, it might be interesting to know that William W. Phelps' original lyrics to the hymn Praise to the Man read a little differently than they do today. The second verse originally read, Long shall his blood, which was shed by assassins, stain Illinois while the earth lauds his fame. You can see that in the Times and Seasons, August 1st, 1844. Now, in 1927, President Heber J. Grant initiated a good neighbor policy which sought to remove any suggestion in church literature, sermons, and ordinances that would suggest seeking vengeance on the United States or its citizens, particularly for the assassination of Joseph Smith. As a result... Stain, Illinois, was changed to Plead Unto Heaven, which
0: is how it reads now. Oh, that's a great bit of trivia. If you're interested in a singing of the original version, check out YouTube. There's a few different performances of the original Praise to the Man, and you might enjoy those. Now, we've read some powerful testimonies. We've heard powerful testimonies. How do we, or those around us, obtain a testimony of the Prophet Joseph Smith. For this, let's turn to Elder Neil L. Anderson. This is included in the Institute Manual. It was originally found in the October 2014 General Conference, and he says this, Joseph Smith is the prophet of the Restoration. His spiritual work began with the appearance of the Father and the Son, followed by numerous heavenly visitations. He was the instrument in God's hands in bringing forth sacred scripture, lost doctrine, and the restoration of the priesthood. The importance of Joseph's work requires more than intellectual consideration. It requires that we, like Joseph, ask of God. Spiritual questions deserve spiritual answers from God. Each believer needs a spiritual confirmation of the divine mission. And character of the Prophet Joseph Smith. This is true for every generation. A testimony of the Prophet Joseph Smith can come differently to each of us. It may come as you kneel in prayer asking God to confirm that he was a true prophet. It may come as you read the prophet's account of the first vision. A testimony may distill upon your soul as you read the Book of Mormon again and again It may come as you bear your own testimony of the prophet or as you stand in the temple and realize that through Joseph Smith, the holy sealing power was restored to the earth. With faith and real intent, your testimony of the prophet Joseph Smith will strengthen. To the youth listening today or reading these words in the days ahead, I give a specific challenge. Gain a personal witness of the Prophet Joseph Smith.
1: And in addition to what Elder Anderson has said, I would submit that it is also important to seek that witness of, say, the Prophet Brigham Young, John Taylor, and the other faithful prophets up to, and certainly including, Russell M. Nelson, and even those that will follow him. Our Heavenly Father will grant us the individual testimonies we seek, but we must seek them.
0: I would testify that I don't think I've ever had an answer to my prayer come more quickly, and again, this is just me, than when I ask if the current prophet is the Lord's prophet and leader of his church. That answer has never come quietly or simply for me, whereas many other answers do or take time, but that has been confirmed to me every time I've asked in no uncertain terms. And that really helps when we struggle with the events of the day. Absolutely. Well, we're finishing this section and it feels like the close of an era. We started this year following the journey of Joseph Smith as a young teen struggling to find his place with God. And now we end this section reminding ourselves of all that the Lord did through him as a mighty prophet. Verse 6 ends with, from age to age shall their names go down to posterity as gems for the sanctified.
1: Yeah, I see. I see what you did
0: there. But isn't that so amazing? Perhaps there has not been more special gems discovered in our time together than the truths restored through this treasure of a prophet. Very true. President Gordon B. Hinckley, in an article in the December 2005 Enzyme, Had this to say We do not worship the prophet. We worship God our eternal Father and the risen Lord Jesus Christ. But we acknowledge the prophet. We proclaim him. We respect him. We reverence him as an instrument in the hands of the Almighty in restoring to the earth the ancient truths of the divine gospel, together with the priesthood through which the authority of God is exercised in the affairs of his church for the blessing of his people.
1: And you know, isn't that interesting too? We talk a lot about the prophet Joseph Smith in our church history. We don't necessarily focus as heavily on the succeeding prophets. And we're going to see when we study the Old Testament next year, that's actually kind of a repeating pattern. Take for example, Moses. Moses is a very famous prophet. But do we talk about Joshua a lot? He was
0: his successor. Yeah, it's rare to have somebody that's called up for such a special monumental event, and so it is. I think it's
1: often significant when you have someone who begins a new dispensation, who begins a restoration from an apostasy. That's been a repeating pattern throughout human history, and those key players that perform that restoration, they're the ones that we remember and we often revere. Yeah, Joseph Smith, as the prophet chosen to initiate the dispensation of the fullness of times, deserves our reverence. He has served God in every way that he could and has accomplished much through him.
0: Well, and how much have our lives been blessed because of it? Can you tell that we're having a hard time leaving Joseph? (laughs) We don't want to leave him behind, but we do have to move on as time and history did. In the Doctrine and Covenants, we have a bit of a gap in some important history that we don't have any revelations regarding. And this has to do with how leadership should be passed on after Joseph's death. This is a very significant event.
1: And, you know, that's something that we lose sight of with the Doctrine and Covenants. Unlike the Book of Mormon or the Bible, it's not really a narrative. It's a collection of revelations. And sometimes we treat it like a narrative, and it really isn't. Yeah, it sometimes tells parts of the early church history but it's not meant to that's not its purpose
0: right and you can tell we've tried to put a lot of effort into fleshing out the story around these revelations and the church has so many great resources for doing that in this case we're going to recommend some resources for you we recommend the article in the church history topics remember it's in your gospel library and then church history and then church history topics This article is called The Succession of Church Leadership. Now, in there, it includes an eight-minute video which summarizes the event. So you could certainly read the contents, but if you want to watch the video, it's there. In short, the majority recognized that leadership should pass to the quorum of the Twelve who held the keys of the priesthood, regardless of other people who were vying for that authority. Brigham Young was the president of that quorum. And he would act as the leader of the church until he was sustained as president of the church about three years later, on December 27, 1847. Now, the Church History Topics article that I just recommended, The Succession of Church Leadership, it says the quorum under Presidents Young, Taylor, and Woodruff each waited about three years after the death of their predecessors before reorganizing the first presidency. And just to clarify, that means before they were sustained as the president of the church. Going back to the article, Wilford Woodruff, the fourth president of the church, had urged the Twelve not to delay in sustaining a new first presidency after his own death. Lorenzo Snow organized the first presidency, then almost immediately, as did each of his successors, and the church continues to follow this pattern of succession today. Well, so there it is we now are going to be moving forward under the leadership of President Brigham Young.
1: And while we may be done with Joseph Smith in this lesson, we are not done with him this year, and we continue in the Doctrine and Covenants. Let's take a look at Section 136. From the Institute Manual, let's get some background. Since at least 1844, church leaders had been actively planning for a possible move west The Prophet Joseph Smith and other church leaders sensed the growing hostility toward the church in Illinois and recognized that they might have to leave the state. Under Joseph's direction, the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles in February 1844 began secretly planning for an expedition to western North America to look for possible gathering places. Shortly thereafter, the Prophet formed a new organization known as the Council of Fifty and charged it with finding a new home for the saints in the West. Near the end of his life, the prophet Joseph Smith committed the priesthood keys of this dispensation to the members of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. After the prophet's martyrdom, during a meeting held on August 8, 1844, many church members received a spiritual manifestation confirming to them that Brigham Young, who was president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, was to lead the church. Many enemies of the church thought that once the prophet Joseph Smith was killed, the church would collapse. However, when the church and the city of Nauvoo continued to grow and prosper, enemies of the church increased their efforts to drive church members from Illinois. In September 1844, Colonel Levi Williams, one of those indicted for the murders of Joseph and Hiram Smith, but later acquitted, led a mob of 300 men and systematically burned outlying mormon farms and homes they torched many unprotected homes farm buildings mills and grain stacks many illinois residents were afraid that the presence of the latter-day saints in their state would lead to a civil war and asked church members to leave the state on september 24 1845 the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles published a letter promising that the church would leave the following spring. Under threats of violence from local mobs and the state militia, church members began leaving Nauvoo in February 1846, journeying west across the state of Iowa. Because of excessive rain and insufficient supplies, church members who left Nauvoo in February 1846 spent over three and a half months making the 300-mile journey across Iowa. During this time, more than 500 Latter-day Saint men, who became known as the Mormon Battalion, heeded the call of President Brigham Young to enlist in the United States Army to serve during the Mexican War, which had begun in May 1846. Some of the men were joined by their wives and children. Their service would earn money to help poor church members make the journey west, but many families were left without husbands and fathers for part of their westward journey. For these reasons, church leaders determined not to continue west to the Rocky Mountains until the spring of 1847 and counseled church members to stay in temporary settlements for the winter. Now, as a side note, that story never ceases to impress me. Tell me about it. The saints were driven out of Kirtland, Missouri, and now Illinois, and Joseph and Hiram were assassinated, and the indicted assassins were all acquitted, and now they are essentially being kicked out of the country. Remember that the area now known as Utah today was actually part of Mexico until 1848, and the United States government now has the gall to ask, oh, and we need 500 of your men to enlist our army due to a skirmish we're having with Mexico. That these men did heed the call, even though it caused wives and children to continue their journey unaided, is a level of sainthood and patriotism, by the way, that we should all marvel at and aspire to. Yeah. It's just incredible to me.
0: Yeah. I think it was great wisdom, though, in Brigham Young.
1: Well, talk about turning the other cheek. Right. That is just an amazing manifestation of that. Yeah. Back to the introduction, though. A number of settlements of saints stretched along both sides of the Missouri River. The largest settlement, Winter Quarters, was on the west side in Nebraska. It quickly became home to approximately 3,500 church members who lived in houses of logs and in dugouts of willows and dirt. Many people were inadequately sheltered from the cold weather. Diseases such as malaria, pneumonia, tuberculosis, Cholera and scurvy resulted in widespread suffering and death. More than 700 church members died that first winter. In January 1847, Brigham Young prayed for the Lord's direction regarding the emigration to the West and then dictated the inspired council that is recorded in Doctrine and Covenants 136. Now, this revelation didn't make it into the 1844 edition of the Doctrine and Covenants because it was received in 1847, but it would be later added in the 1876 edition by Orson Pratt under the direction of Brigham Young.
0: Right. Well, let's jump into the revelation starting in verse 1. The word and will of the Lord concerning the camp of Israel in their journeyings to the west. Let all the people of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and those who journey with them be organized into companies with a covenant and a promise to keep all the commandments and statutes of the Lord our God. Let the companies be organized with captains of hundreds, captains of fifties, and captains of tens, with a president and his two counselors at their head under the direction of the Twelve Apostles. What an amazing
1: start. Brigham Young has been acknowledged as an incredible leader by those inside and outside the church. And this revelation demonstrates the divine direction that was given to him. Now, as a side note, it's a sobering thought to me that Brigham Young was 45 when this revelation was given. And Jay and I are now both older than he was then, and he would continue to serve as the prophet for another 30 years which is the longest term of any prophet in this dispensation. Yeah. He was an amazing man.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: But back to the revelation, verse 4, And this shall be our covenant, that we will walk in all the ordinances of the Lord. And let's skip a minute to verse 7. Let each company with their captains and presidents decide how many can go next spring then choose out a sufficient number of able-bodied and expert men to take teams, seeds, and farming utensils to go as pioneers to prepare for putting in spring crops.
0: Mm. What a great vision that whatever they're going to do and even whatever they're going to suffer, that, like it says in verse 4, they will walk in all the ordinances of the Lord. President Thomas S. Monson in an article in the July 2016 Enzyme called True to the Faith of Our Forefathers, explained how members of the church today can be pioneers. He said, To be a Latter-day Saint is to be a pioneer. For the definition of a pioneer is one who goes before, to prepare or open up the way for others to follow. And to be a pioneer is to become acquainted with sacrifice. Although members of the church are no longer asked to leave their homes to make the journey to Zion, they often must leave behind old habits, long-time customs, and cherished friends. Some make the agonizing decision to leave behind family members who oppose their church membership. Latter-day Saints move forward, however, praying that precious ones will yet understand and accept. The path of a pioneer is not easy. But we follow in the footsteps of the ultimate pioneer, even the Savior, who went before, showing us the way to follow.
1: You know, we've mentioned on the show before that both of our parents had joined the church as young adults, and to date, they are the only members of the church in their respective families and ancestry. Our mother was the first to join, and she introduced the church to our father, While we may not have any Utah pioneer ancestry, as many here in Utah do, I've always considered our mother and our father to be pioneers in their own right. Thanks, President Monson.
0: Yeah, great point. I hope you'll take an opportunity to think about the pioneers in your life. And maybe they don't go back as far as this period in church history. But who have been those people that have helped prepare the way for you, To follow. An excellent exercise.
1: Let's go back to the Revelation. Let me summarize a few things. Verse 8 Let each company bear an equal proportion in taking the poor, the widows, the fatherless, and the families of those who have gone into the army. Verse 9 Let each company prepare houses and fields for raising grain. Remember, they're essentially setting up way stations for future saints to make the journey. Verse 10. Let every man use all his influence and property to remove this people. In other words, use all talents and money to make sure everyone makes it out. And if you do, verse 11, And if ye do this with a pure heart, in all faithfulness, ye shall be blessed. And you shall be blessed in your flocks, and in your herds, and in your fields, and in your houses, and in your families.
0: Yeah. Notice Not only the instructions to care for others, but the promise that the Lord will bless us when we help others in need and prepare the way for them. It's interesting that they would plant these crops and prepare these houses that they may never harvest or use. They're really setting the stage for others who would come. Now, in verses 12 through 14, we've got three companies that are organized, each headed by two members of the Quorum of the Twelve. In verse 15, instructions to appoint presidents and captains of hundreds and fifties and tens. This has reference to the original camp of Israel, referenced in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 15. In verse 16, appointed servants should teach the people the Lord's will through his prophet. And then in verses 20 through 27, there are specific commands to keep the commandments. And this is really important because you'll see that I don't want to say sprinkled throughout, but it's constantly reinforced in this revelation that they're going to have problems. This camp of Zion will not move forward unless it is through keeping the commandments, like in verse 20. Don't covet. Think about how that might be significant in a place where there are people that maybe wish they had things they didn't have. In verse 21, do not take the name of the Lord in vain. In verse 23, don't contend or speak evil of each other. Think about how important that is when you've got a community in such a struggling situation. In verse 24, you might find this one interesting, cease drunkenness. Now, that's something that we may not pay too much attention to in instructions today, but recall that the word of wisdom is not yet in full force among the people. But also in 24, and this is really important, speak in edifying ways. each other. What does that mean, to speak in edifying ways? I know that we have different family cultures, and I don't mean this as any particular criticism of a family culture, but when I was a young married fellow, we knew a young couple at church who were constantly ridiculing one another publicly. And when I talked to them about it at one point, they said, "Ah, it's just how our families are. You know, we just always are picking on each other and so forth. I don't know if this is connected, but their marriage didn't last very long. I think there's a really important part of this principle to build each other up. And even if it is part of your family culture to pick on each other, and I don't mean teasing in a fun, loving way. I get that. But I think there's a really important principle here in verse 24. Speak in edifying ways, in ways that lift one another. That's the nature of Zion.
1: Well, and isn't that an example of something that President Monson was talking about earlier, that they often must leave behind old habits and customs? Whether your family does that or not, maybe that's not the best thing for you to do.
0: Yeah. Now, going on in 25 and 26, if you borrow something, return it. If you lose it, find it. That's an important principle. Think about the contention that causes if you disrespect someone else's things that you've borrowed? It kind
1: of works both ways in a way, because not only does it emphasize the need to pay back a debt or to find something that you've lost, but it respects the notion of property ownership. There are things that
0: belong to people, and they're not yours. Well, and remember the terms that we used before, stewardships. Mm -hmm. If someone has a stewardship over the things the Lord has blessed them with, and you disrespect that stewardship, obviously we should be forthcoming and sharing, recognizing the source through which the things we have were obtained through the Lord. So sharing them is a great thing to do, but they are your stewardship. And if someone disrespects that stewardship by losing it or breaking it or, you know, just treating it, leaving it out in the rain, whatever it would be, that can cause contention. Now, in verse 22, it's particularly interesting in comparing the saints of this time to the original camp of Israel we mentioned in Deuteronomy. It says, I am he who led the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt, and my arm is stretched out in the last days to save my people Israel. So a great image of that deliverance from the Old Testament.
1: That had to have been amazing to hear and very heartening. Now, back to the Revelation, starting in verse 28. If thou art merry, praise the Lord with singing, with music, with dancing, and with a prayer of praise and thanksgiving. If thou art sorrowful, call on the Lord thy God with supplication, that your souls may be joyful. Now, it may seem simple, but I've always appreciated a specific call-out to the sanctioning of music, singing, and dancing, particularly with a prayer of praise
0: and thanksgiving. I'm sure many of you can relate to that. Yeah. Well, going on in verse 31, the Lord says, "'My people must be tried in all things, "'that they may be prepared to receive the glory "'that I have for them, even the glory of Zion. "'And he that will not bear chastisement "'is not worthy of my kingdom.'" Now, have you noticed that pattern <laughs> before? We've <laughs> talked about it again and again almost from the very beginning as joseph was called to do the lord's work again and again he was called to bear chastisement there's a couple of great scriptures one that john really likes in hebrews 12:6 john for whom the lord loveth he chasteneth my favorite is in revelations 3:19 whom the lord loveth he chasteneth be zealous therefore and repent i always need that encouragement to be zealous Let's go on in verse 34. Thy brethren have rejected you and your testimony, even the nation that has driven you out. And now cometh the day of their calamity, even the days of sorrow, like a woman that is taken in travail. And their sorrow shall be great unless they speedily repent, yea, very speedily. For they killed the prophets and them that were sent unto them And they have shed innocent blood, which crieth from the ground against them. Therefore, marvel not at these things. For ye are not yet pure. Ye cannot yet bear my glory. But ye shall behold it, if ye are faithful, in keeping all my words that I have given you, from the days of Adam to Abraham, from Abraham to Moses, from Moses to Jesus and his apostles, and from Jesus and his apostles to Joseph Smith, whom I did call upon by mine angels, mine ministering servants, and by mine own voice out of the heavens, to bring forth my work, which foundation he did lay and was faithful, and I took him to myself.
1: Now there is a very powerful testimony. The Institute Manual reminds us that the dissenters in Nauvoo who contributed to events leading to the murder of the prophet Joseph Smith proclaimed him to be a fallen prophet. However, in the revelation recorded in Doctrine and Covenants 136, the Lord testified of the prophet Joseph Smith's divine calling and stated that he was faithful, and I took him to myself. Amen. So going back to the revelation, verse 39, many have marveled because of his death. But it was needful that he should seal his testimony with his blood, that he might be honored and the wicked might be condemned.
0: President Joseph F. Smith spoke of the necessity of the deaths of the prophet Joseph Smith and his brother Hiram and what we can learn from them. This comes from the teachings of the presidents of the church, Joseph Smith.
1: And remember that Joseph F. Smith is Hiram's son.
0: Right. So he says this, what does the martyrdom of Joseph and Hiram Smith teach us? The great lesson that where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. Here he references Hebrews 9.16. To make it of force. The Lord permitted the sacrifice that the testimony of those virtuous and righteous men should stand as a witness against a perverse and unrighteous world. Then again, they were examples of of the wonderful love of which the Redeemer speaks. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. This wonderful love they manifested to the saints and to the world, for both realized and expressed their conviction before starting on the journey to Carthage that they were going to their death. This martyrdom has always been an inspiration to the people of the Lord. It has helped them in their individual trials, has given them courage to pursue a course in righteousness, and to know and to live the truth, and must ever be held in sacred memory by the Latter-day Saints, who have learned the great truths that God revealed through his servant, Joseph Smith. So let's
1: take a look at the last few verses of this revelation. Verse 40, Have I not delivered you from your enemies, only in that I have left a witness of my name? Now therefore, hearken, O ye people of my church, and ye elders, listen together. You have received my kingdom. Be diligent in keeping all my commandments, lest judgments come upon you, and your faith fail you, and your enemies triumph over you. So no more at present. Amen and amen. Now, many stories have been told about the Saints' migration to Utah, and several movies have been made. Mm -hmm. Saints, Volume 2 is a really great source if you want more of that
0: story. I can't recommend that enough. It's fun to read and very accurate and informative. So the Saints obeyed the Lord's command. The seminary manual tells us that the first group of pioneers left winter quarters on April 5, 1847— they traveled more than a thousand miles and arrived in the Salt Lake Valley in late July 1847. On July 24th, 1847, President Brigham Young entered the valley and received confirmation that the saints had found their new home. He was riding in the back of Wilford Woodruff's wagon at the time because he was sick with a fever. Wilford Woodruff says this, When we came into full view of the valley, I turned the side of my carriage around, open to the west, and President Young arose from his bed and took a survey of the country. While gazing upon the scene before us, he was enwrapped in vision for several minutes. He had seen the valley before in vision, and upon this occasion he saw the future glory of Zion and of Israel. When the vision had passed, he said, It is enough. This is the right place. Drive on.
1: Now, this momentous occasion, for those of you outside of the state of Utah, is celebrated every year in Utah. July 24th is Pioneer Day. Yeah. And there's much celebration every year, parades, etc. Something great to honor.
0: It's a pretty special time for our people. Indeed. My goodness, What an amazing amount of things we covered today. Please, again, we encourage you, if you're interested in those topics, check out the extra resources on especially the pioneer travels to the West, like you'd find in Saints, Volume 2.
1: And we are getting close to the end of the year, but we still have some great things to discuss with you. So keep reading your scriptures, and we'll talk to you more in our next lesson. We'll look forward to seeing you then. This podcast is not officially affiliated with The
0: Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but we're really big fans.